Tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is the word of the Lord. wanted to start with a, an announcement tonight. This one just seemed uh, worthy of putting at the front end of things. Daryl Arnold, uh, the pastor at uh, Overcoming Believer Church, uh, who's ministered to us, called me late last night and he said, uh, we are going to stand with our brothers and we are going to have a prayer service at uh, Bethel at Amy Zion Church on Boyd's Bridge Park on Wednesday night at 6. And he said, would you invite your people to come? He said, uh, just, well, what he said was, we don't want to be just all black faces. He, he said, we, we want to be supported by uh, our brothers, uh, and would you, would you all come? So I'll be participating in it, and uh, if you can come, I would love to have you join me there. Monica was a senior studying social work at UT in the fall of 2008 when she fell in love. The objects of her affections was not a boyfriend, but a presidential candidate named Barack Obama. And every Friday afternoon, Monica and her friends would drive to North Carolina where they went door-to-door campaigning for Obama. She joined these same friends on Wednesday evenings as they studied the Gospel of Luke together. And that fall, she was struck by Jesus' love for the poor and oppressed. Her friends uh, were reading Sojourner's Magazine, and she subscribed. She also began to regularly read the opinion pages of the New York Times. Monica began volunteering at an inner-city school program that fall. She fell in love with the children. She saw how important social programs were for their survival. And her growing interest in social justice began to shape her politics. And and she increasingly began to believe that the government was a tool for social change. She she wanted an active government that provided for education and health care and housing and passed laws protecting workers and civil rights and the environment. Monica became a passionate Democrat because she believed that the Democratic Party, while imperfect, best represented her Christian values. And she remembers saying in a confidential moment on the way home from North Carolina to a friend, you know, it's hard for me to see how a Christian could be Republican. Caitlin volunteers with Monica at the same after-school program. And Caitlin had never really integrated her faith and her political views until she spent a summer interning at Focus on the Family in Colorado. 
She did research for the National Institute of Marriage during the day. She took classes on the family during the evenings. After graduating from college, Caitlin took a job at Hope Resource Center and counseled women who uh, were considering abortion. She loved that work. She became deeply committed to protecting the unborn. During her MBA program at UT, Caitlin read a lot of Charles Murray. She began subscribing to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Caitlin saw problems with capitalism, but she also came to believe that a free market unhindered by government regulation could do great good for the world. Caitlin fell in love with the kids in the program as well, but working with them uh, led her some very different conclusions and raised some troubling questions. She met irresponsible parents who spent food stamp money on alcohol and didn't care if the kids were hungry. She was bothered by a sense of entitlement in the kids she worked with. And it seemed to her that government programs actually made things worse. And Caitlin became a Republican because she believed it was the party that best represented her Christian beliefs. And she recalls saying to a friend one evening, you know, I just don't know how you could be a Christian and be a Democrat. Monica and Caitlin run in the same social circles at All Souls. But during the 2012 election cycle, they really got on one another's nerves. Monica got so tired of Caitlin's constant criticisms of Obama, Caitlin grew weary of Monica's constant jibes at Fox News. And as the next presidential election season draws near, Monica is thinking about finding a church more sympathetic to her politics. And and if she's honest, she fears that the people of all souls are becoming too conservative. Caitlin is also considering leaving all souls and finding a church who are more sympathetic with her politics. She fears that the people at all souls are becoming too liberal. Can Monica and Caitlin remain in fellowship together even as another divisive election year begins? Well, we believe they can. It's not easy, but we'd like to think that they can. And one of the things that's essential to all souls is our belief that we can pursue unity amidst great theological diversity. And we, we do that in two ways. We've been talking about this uh, since January. We'll end this next week. First of all, we hold firm to the Nicene Creed. We've said that the church is like a tetherball game and that every church has to have a pole as it applies Scripture to the world. But you've got to have a poll, and you've got to decide what's in your poll. What are those minimum essential beliefs that you've decided you're all going to agree on, and without that agreement, you can't be a church together? And we've said that our poll is the Nicene Creed. We also have to disagree well on important issues that are outside of the creed. How do you do that? Well, that's how we've been ending up this series, with a, a little mini-series on disagreeing well. How can Monica and Caitlin do that? Well, first, they have to decide what's their poll. Uh, What are those essential beliefs? Uh, Monica and Caitlin need to decide, are are politics part of this circle? Is politics part of their poll? Because if it is, if that's something that they need uh, in order to be in fellowship together, uh, then, you know, that might not work. 
Secondly, Monica and Caitlin need to learn how to engage with humility. They don't need to abandon their convictions. They do need to learn to talk about their convictions with humility. Now, why? Because sin has affected our ability to interpret the Bible. We are not able to interpret the Bible perfectly. And let me read a couple passages that talk about that. In the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul describes fallen people like this. This is Romans 1, 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is sometimes called the noetic effect of sin, the Greek word nous, meaning the mind, that, that sin has corrupted or tainted the human mind. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that when we don't know God, we live in the, that they live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. So you're catching the drift of this, that the, the impact of, of sin on the human mind is an inability to understand the ways of God. And, and the church's great teachers have uh, all agreed on this. Thomas Aquinas believed, quote, Human reason is very defective in divine things. Martin Luther it is therefore not astonishing that in divine things men of outstanding talent through so many centuries have been blind. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Man's Natural Blindness in the Things of Religion. But what happens when God saves us and redeems us and makes us new creatures in Christ? Doesn't Paul say of believers, now we've received the Spirit who's from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God? Doesn't God give us the Holy Spirit, and doesn't the Holy Spirit open us up to, to grasp Scripture? Well, of course He does. Uh, he certainly does. But the Bible is very clear. Sin still affects saved people. It still has an influence over our life as God makes us more and more like Him. The Corinthian believers actually were too optimistic about their ability to know God perfectly. And so God gives them that little chapter, that, that, that little paragraph that Becky read. I'm going to read it again. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. Here's the part I want you to remember. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. So we look forward to a day when we will know God fully, we'll know everything about God fully. But Paul says, we're not there yet. He says, it's like looking into a mirror dimly. You can see, you can see the reflection of God. You can see enough of God, but it's not like seeing him face to face. That will happen when we meet him. Now, Peter understood this. Uh, referring to one of the letters of Paul, which uh, already uh, were being understood as Scripture, Peter says, he says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you 
according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> so I've always been intrigued by that little verse that one of the apostles who himself wrote inspired scripture said, man, Paul's hard sometimes. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's comforted me in my study. So it is best to hold our convictions with some humility because sin has affected our ability to think. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible is impossible for us to understand. Uh, God has revealed himself to us in words we can understand and obey. The Bible describes itself as a light and a lamp guiding us out of darkness. God's people have experienced Scripture that way for thousands of years. And let's be honest, much of the Bible is in plain, straightforward language. It's not hard to understand texts like, put to death what's earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. It doesn't take three years of Greek to figure out what Jesus means when he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So what we want to affirm before we get further into humility is what the church has called the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. And the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, puts that like this. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now, what that classic statement essentially means is that, yes, there are difficult passages in the Bible that we disagree on, but the, all the things that are essential to knowing God and to growing in salvation uh, are clear. We have what we need. Now, we still disagree on the hard questions, the texts that are hard to understand. One of the ways that we can see this illustrated is that there's a series of books that have come out in about the last 20 years that most pastors have in their offices, and they're called the Three Views Series, or the Four Views Series, or the Five View Series. And uh, here are some of the titles. The Nature of the Atonement, Four Views. Understanding, Four Views on Baptism. Perspectives on the Doctrine of God, Four Views. Four Views on Church Government, Four Views on Hell. Divorce and Remarriage, Four Christian Views. Four Views on Salvation in a Pluralistic World, Four Views of Christ. Women in Ministry, Four Views. Four Views on Eternal Security. Revelation, Four Views. Divine Foreknowledge, Four Views. Understanding, Four Views on the Lord's Supper. Predestination and free will, four views. The meaning of the millennium, four views. War, four Christian views. Four views of the end times. Our miraculous gifts for today, four views. God and time, four views. Show them, I'm only halfway done. Show them no mercy. Four views on God and Canaanite genocide, which is a view in itself, bad title. Four views on moving beyond the Bible to theology. Psychology and Christianity, five views. Science and Christianity, four views. What about those who've never heard? Three views. Three views on the rapture. How should we choose? Three views on decision-making. Three views on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. The Genesis debate, three views. Perspectives on Christian worship, five views. Five views on apologetics. Church, state, and public justice, five views. Now, I have a lot of those. <laughs> and I've read them, and they're very, very helpful. And uh, what, what, what they, they do is they take a godly scholar 
who will present one position and another position, and, and then at the end they will debate each other and, and, and argue it out. And uh, I find them very helpful as I decide what, what I'm trying to believe. But they also remind me to temper some of my certainty with humility. Because if the best theologians in the world uh, can disagree on these important things, it suggests to me that, um, that I should be a little humble in my own position. Now, if you look at church history, one of uh, the ways we're reminded uh, that we need a little humility when we interpret the Bible is when you look at uh, the church's teachings on slavery. One of the most passionate and eloquent defenders of slavery was the Presbyterian minister, Reverend James Henley Thornwell of Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, Reverend Thornwell believed that the real issue in the slavery debate was the authority of Scripture. He thought that God's word was clear as a bell on slavery and must be obeyed. He began one discussion on slavery with these words, quote, As a church, let it be distinctly borne in mind that the only rule of judgment is the written word of God. The church has no right to utter a single syllable upon any subject except as the Lord puts words in her mouth. Thornwell believed that slavery was the good and merciful way God organized society to function effectively. And he typically began his pro-slavery sermons with Leviticus 25:45. You may also put from this, you may also from the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. And then he would turn to 1 Corinthians 7:20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. And after expositing these texts, Thornwell would say to the congregation, what is the plain meaning of these scriptures? And then he ended sermons like these by reminding his flock that if they gave up what the Bible clearly taught on slavery, all trust in the Bible would be lost. Now, a thousand miles to the north... Another minister had been preaching a very different sermon on slavery. His name was Theodore Weld. He had been converted to Charles Finney Revival. And he became convinced that slavery was the Bible's or America's greatest sin. And he wrote a book called The Bible Argument Against Slavery. And uh, that was a book that Harriet Beecher Stowe read, or wrote, read that inspired her to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, if you read it today, the arguments aren't really the ones that we would use, but he started a conversation in the church uh, that, that led the church, by the Spirit, I believe, to realize that it had erred in its teaching on slavery. Now, all this is a little confusing at this point. You may be feeling a little bit like this guy. That's where I've gotten to uh, at, the, <laughs> at some points in, in this series. Um, <laughs> And we're almost done, so just hang in there. Um, how can we study the scriptures if sin has affected our ability to interpret them? Well, again, let's remember, much of what the Bible teaches is clear, right? Can we just agree on that? They're not a book called Four Views on Murder. Uh, you know, some things are just very clear. Mark Twain said, I'm more worried about the parts of the Bible I do understand than the parts that I don't <laughs> Okay, that's a good, good point, right? We affirm the doctrine of clarity scripture. We know all we need to know for life and godliness. But there are texts in scripture that are hard to understand. 
and uh, how can we interpret them? Well, history does provide some examples. Uh, rabbis in Jesus' day approached difficult texts of Scripture by looking at various possible meanings and comparing and contrasting them. This was called Midrash. And uh, a quote from a, a historian says, The general sense in the Jewish tradition is that one argues with the text and with fellow Jews about the text, and that in some cases, some cases, multiple meanings are possible. Jews are more inclined to say, I'm right and you may be right too. And if you, uh, you can get, well, copies of, of Midrash, and that would be how you'd be trained as a rabbinical scholar, is you'd look at all the, all the interpretations of this and the ones that contrast it against it, and you kind of debate them back and forth. Um, now, if you studied theology in the 12th century, uh, you'd do something similar. You'd be given a, a workbook written by a man named Peter Abelard, and the title of the workbook would have been uh, Seek et Non, which is Latin for Yes, But, or Yes and No. And Abelard wrote down 158 different theological questions, and then he wrote down different ways that the church fathers had answered them. And students were tested by arguing one side or the other. And you were supposed to learn both sides of it and make up your own mind. And I'm told, I haven't been able to verify this, but I was told the only way you could fail is if you stop smiling during the argument. Um, now, I really think this is a wonderful way to study Scripture. I, I think presenting alternative views of understanding difficult passages and then encouraging uh, the, the body to make up their own convictions is a very effective way of studying Scripture. I studied at two different seminaries. My professors in the first seminary uh, approached a difficult subject by telling me what to believe and why I should believe it, and then they asked me to write a paper summarizing what they'd taught me. My professors in the second seminary approached a difficult subject by exposing me to the different ways Christian teachers had understood the Bible's teaching on the subject in the past, and then they asked me to write a paper defending the view that I thought most faithfully represented Scripture. And I think I learned more in the second seminary. Now, it would probably be easier for Monica to go to a church where everyone in the church shared her progressive political views. It would probably be easier for Caitlin to go to a church whose members shared her conservative political views. And uh, that's okay if that's what, what you need to do. I'm not sure it's better, though. Let's think of what might happen if Monica and Caitlin don't break fellowship because of their politics and they learn to engage one another's beliefs with humility. First, Monica and Caitlin will have a chance of building a stronger relationship. Now th think a little bit about how relationships form and, and how humility affects that. Uh, I was listening to a wonderful TED Talk by Katherine Schultz called uh, On Being Wrong. <laughs> and uh, she observes that when we believe that our view of reality is the only possible way of seeing the world, then we make three assumptions about others who disagree with us. A, they're ignorant. B, they're idiots. Or C, they're evil. And if those are the assumptions you bring into a, a, a relationship... Um, 
you might not get very far. But suppose Monica engages Caitlin with humility. Now, I don't think that means that, that she has to abandon her convictions. But what if she can at least acknowledge that she doesn't know perfectly? And what if she can at least acknowledge that maybe God has Monica in her life because Monica has a piece of reality that she needs to have a fuller understanding? What if she could get that far? Well, I I think if she can approach the relationship with that posture of, I don't know everything, my knowledge is not complete, and you're in my life to help me learn more, there's a greater opportunity for a real relationship to develop. Another great TED Talk that uh, most of you have probably seen by Brene Brown, The Power of Vulnerability, uh, it talks about how people who connect well embrace vulnerability. And so if I'm in the relationship with you, and what I really think is you, you're either ignorant, an idiot, or evil, I'm not really very vulnerable uh, to you. But if I'm willing to open up just a little bit and, and admit that even though I think you're way off, you might have something to teach me, I think that opens up the opportunity for relationship. Uh, Margaret Wheatley has written a wonderful book on conversations. And in one section, she talks about some of the things that happen when we approach conversations with humility. And I I think I made this a slide, yeah. Uh, When when you start to approach relationships this way, we acknowledge one another as equals. We try to stay curious about each other. We recognize that we need each other's help to become better listeners. We remember that conversation is the natural way humans think together. We expect it to be messy at times. That, to me, uh, has the, the, the resonance of relational intimacy. Versus, I sit at my desk, my desk and I bomb you on Facebook. You sit at your desk, you bomb me on Facebook. I, I don't know if we're getting very far. Well, with, with that. Now, if Monica and Caitlin learn how to engage one another humility, they might also have an opportunity to deepen their faith. And, and let's be honest. What we're talking about tonight is really scary. I mean, to think that I might be wrong about something really bothers me. To think that Danny might be wrong? Ah, Fine. But to think that I might be wrong really bothers me. I mean, I spend my whole life trying to get it right. You pay me to try to get it right. And this uh, wonderful talk on being wrong, uh, Schultz puts up a PowerPoint of an exam with red marks all over it and a C-minus grade on top. And then she points out that from a very early age, we are taught that being wrong is shameful And that to admit that we're wrong is to admit that something is wrong in us. Philip Daves uh, told me a story this week that illustrated how hard it is for us to admit that we're wrong. He was interviewing 50 high school seniors for the honors program in the the business school where he teaches over at UT. And he asked each of them if they could ever remember a time when they'd been wrong. (laughs) One said yes. And I... I remember the story right, then later come back and said he'd been wrong. No, he'd never been wrong. (laughs) So, 
this becomes even more frightening when we're talking about God's word, right? Because now we're talking about beliefs with uh, eternal consequences. And that's one of the reasons why the creed gives me such great comfort, because if, if all Christians in all places in all times have always believed the Bible teaches these core truths, and Christians agree about a lot, disagree about a lot, but they don't disagree about that, that, that comforts me. It means we probably got that part right. You know, we, we had an interesting discussion about this in the Friday lunch group this week, and, and I asked the guys, when was the last time you changed your mind <laughs> about something important in the Bible? And I might ask you that. You know, when was the last time you thought, you know, I, missed, I, I think I was wrong on that. I, 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 the Lord has shown me something new. And, you know, this is the over 50 group, so you might imagine um, where that went. Um, a lot of looking at sandwiches and things like that. Um, and... Uh, most of us couldn't think of an example. But what we did realize was, was that we had become open to new ways of thinking about things. Uh, we have realized that somebody with a different perspective might have something to teach us. And, and, you know, I think that's the kind of humility we're talking about tonight. A humility that holds on to convictions but becomes open and curious towards another with a different view. And so when you come into the conversation with me... I'm, I'm not listening only so that I can convert you. I'm not holding my fire just long enough to figure out the best way to get under your defenses. But I actually have a kind of posture where you might really teach me something about this. And I, I just find this whole thing terrifying. Wheatley says, as we work together to restore hope for the future, we need to include a new and strange ally. Our willingness to be disturbed, our willingness to have our beliefs and ideas challenged by what others think. And this is very difficult. (laughs) And this is why this kind of relating requires faith. And so for me, for you, you you know, I personally... See myself as a pro-life Christian. I have some dear friends who are more pro-choice in their understanding of that. It, it, it means that, that uh, when I sit down with them, as I did earlier this year, I, and met with them and said, tell me what you think, it, it, it means that I'm saying, I may not come to your point of view, but, but I think you have something to teach, you here, teach me here. I, I think you're in my life and in my community, because even though I think you're totally wrong, I think you've got something to share with me. And it requires faith for me. This has been very personal for me when I'm sitting in my office, as I have recently, uh, with, a, with a young person who I love very much who, who says uh, that they're gay and hands me a book about a progressive understanding of the Scripture's teaching on sexuality. And uh, I have a traditional understanding of the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And even though I've been studying it for years, still have that understanding. It takes faith for me to say, I will read this with you. Here, read this. (laughs) Uh, I don't have full knowledge on this subject, uh, and I can learn from you. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Well, if Monica and Caitlin can learn to engage one another with humility, they'll also model a better way of handling conflict. 
Should it surprise us that our culture produces monsters like Dylan Roof? We blast away at one another on Facebook with mean-spirited posts. We scream at one another on talk shows. We demonize those who disagree with us. We stir up the fires of resentment and mistrust. And then we are shocked when a demon rises up out of the cauldron of our hatred. Monica and Caitlin can model a better way. Monica can say to Caitlin, Hey, you know, I saw what you posted after the Charleston shootings, and I just have to tell you, it just it really hurt me. Could I talk to you about why? And Caitlin can say to Monica, I am so sorry. I just was so angry. Help me understand how my words affected you. See, that's very different than Monica just talking to all the people who like her post and Caitlin talking to all the people who like her post. Where does that get us? It doesn't happen in our culture anymore, but it ought to happen in the church. Well, we're not the first Christians to struggle balancing truth and love. In 1540, a French seminary student named Sebastian Castillo watched in horror as three Lutherans were burned at the stake for their beliefs. And 13 years later, the professor was teaching Greek at the University of Basel when the Geneva clergy ordered the burning of a man named Servetus. Castillo had had enough, and he wrote a book called Concerning Heretics and Whether They Should Be Persecuted writing under an assumed name because he feared the fires of persecution himself, he warned that the church's pride leads to persecution. I read the book last summer, and it seemed as relevant today as it did 500 years ago. And so we'll give that brave Greek professor the last word. Men are puffed up with knowledge or a false opinion of knowledge and look down on others. Pride is followed by cruelty and persecution so that no, scarcely any, now scarcely anyone is able to endure another who differs at all from him. Although opinions are almost as numerous as men, nevertheless there is hardly any sect which does not condemn all others and desire to reign alone. Let's pray. Thank you.